As a few of you know, I'm Dr. Tina Slusher. I'm a, an associate professor at the University of Minnesota and uh, spend a, a half of my life in the most advanced world uh, doing uh, lots of pediatric sedations and pediatric critical care in the other third to half of my life in low-resource settings. And it's always challenging to me to try to figure out how to bring those two worlds together and how to practice evidence-based medicine in low-resource settings. And part of that evidence-based uh, medicine for a pediatrician slash pediatric critical care physician is definitely pain management. And I'm going to try in our short time together to basically cover quickly the highlights of two lectures that I've put together. One talking about just generally pain control like you would do in post-op or anything else. And the other one briefly highlighting procedural sedation. And although this is pediatric, most of it does indeed translate to the adult world as well with some minor variations. Nothing to disclose. All right. Just as a show of hands, since we don't have the audience response system, uh, which of the following is true regarding pain management? How many would vote for number one? Pain management affects wound healing. All right. Number two, post-traumatic stress disorder is not related to acute pain management. Any takers on that? How about number three, neonates don't feel pain. All right, a lot of you didn't vote. I'll let you off the hook since we don't have the anonymous audience response syndrome system. But the true one is uh, that pain management does indeed affect wound healing. Uh, why do we want to treat pain control? We do so much better this side of the waters than we do in my other life, but it's important to treat pain because untreated pain has psychological... Oh, she's counting. I thought she was pointing at me. ...has uh, psychological effects uh, that are long-lived, long probably lifetime. Uh, untreated pain exacerbates injury and may increase mortality... It does indeed, in many studies, contribute to delayed wound healing, and it does indeed lead to the development of chronic pain and post-traumatic stress disorder. There are some non-pharmacological pain distraction techniques that do help and do work, and these are almost free. So definitely can be used in low-resource settings. There's several studies in pediatrics that say with distraction techniques, using audiovisuals or other types of distraction to do things like start IVs, that you actually do have decreased pain, increased cooperation, and decreased time of the procedure itself, all important. There are a lot of anesthesia myths, especially as they relate to kids. And 
the, the myth that certainly was propagated when I was a medical student and resident was that uh, neonates and children don't really feel pain. They actually feel pain, and actually neonates likely feel more pain because the ability to transmit pain begins very, very early in gestation, while the, the appearance of pain inhibitory apparatus probably doesn't come into being until about 32 weeks of gestation. So kid, neonates, kids do feel pain. About 20 years ago, uh, it was a common belief, as I said, that infants didn't feel pain, and a lot of surgery was done uh, without any anesthesia. And I'm actually horrified when I read the date on this slide because I was definitely already a real-life pediatrician. But in 1992, they did a trial looking at deep anesthesia for cardiac surgery in neonates, and they found decreased psychological stress and decreased mortality, giving them convincing evidence of the importance of adequate analgesia for newborn infants. And again, to me, that's totally mind-boggling that in 1992, we didn't know and understand that neonates needed real pain control for open-heart surgery. We have come a long way from that. Another uh, common myth is that, that respiratory depression is so likely to happen that it makes adequate pain control impossible. It is, that is also not true. It is true that you do need to titrate and monitor the neonate and young infant closer than you do bigger people, and it is easy to overshoot, especially in babies less than six months of age. Uh, and there are some interesting caveats. Uh, opioids in uh, young infants can sometimes cause apnea prior to good pain relief, uh, and there may be some better alternatives in the neonate instead of morphine, but those studies are still being done. Another myth is this whole thing about addiction. And when I ask my Nigerian colleagues, that is their biggest reason for not wanting to do adequate pain control is they are afraid that they'll make their children addicts. But the truth is that addiction rarely happens with appropriate pain control for pain. It helps to understand the difference between addiction, tolerance, and dependence. Addiction is actually a psychological need for or craving along with the physical withdrawal symptoms if the medication is discontinued. And again, people who are in real pain don't become addicted as long as the medication is titrated appropriately to the pain. Tolerance, we see a lot in the pediatric ICU, and what that means is that the longer a kid is on the medicine, the more it takes to control the pain. So if you have a kid in the unit for weeks, yes, you do have to grow up on their 
fentanyl or their morphine in order to control the pain. Uh, and there is no medication that we use uh, in the PICU that you won't ultimately develop tolerance to. Dependence is not addiction. What dependence means is if I have a kid on continuous pain meds for more than about a week, they will develop physiological symptoms if I acutely stop it without slowly weaning it. That's very different from addiction. These babies do not have a psychological need for their pain medicine. They have a physiologic need. Now, uh, JACO has mandated that pain be our fifth vital sign in kids. We have more barriers in terms of how we quantitate pain and recognize it because, of course, our littlest people don't verbalize and there are a lot of cultural attitudes to pain coping and treatment. Again, in much of the sub-Saharan Africa that I've worked in, kids are expected to be stoic after their, about their third birthday or so and not to cry, etc. And, uh, of course, in kids anywhere in the world, there are non-painful contributors to pain-like behavior. There are many ways to look for pain. Some of the easiest are uh, autonomic responses like increase in heart rate and blood pressure. And then there's a whole host of behavioral scales that can be used that use a combination of facial expression, limb movement, and these autonomic signs. Uh, what is, as just a definition, what is analgesia? It's actually the relief of the perception of pain without the intent of actually sedating the patient. Some, of course, many pain meds do alter the mental status, but that's not your intent. All right, the World Health Organization has given us some golden rules of pain management, and what they tell us to do is instead of the old-fashioned and somewhat outdated PRN, they suggest, especially initially, that pain medicines be given by the clock. Regularly scheduled pain medicines ensure that you actually have a steady state of the drug. PRN actually results in cycles of pain that lead to increased pain meds uh, actually in excess of what you get if you actually schedule the drug with the child. And again, that means regular pain assessment using age-appropriate scales. I, these scales are in your handout, but I had to take them out of the online because I don't actually have permission to put them in there. But this is a neonatal and infant pain scale called a NIPS. And as you can see, this scale looks at facial expression, cry, breathing patterns, what their arms and legs are doing, and their state of arousal and a score of, of three or greater indicates that the neonate is in pain. There's the flax scale for young children, and again, this also looks at face, legs, activity, cry, and consolability. 
then there's uh, other verbal assessment scores which can be used uh, in children greater than eight, and then the FACES scale for children greater than four. And this is a visual analog scale, and it can be continuous or intermittent, and we use this a lot in PEDS. Okay, again, uh, the World Health Organization, since the early 90s, has focused more on pain management and has a pain management ladder. This is a stepwise approach based on how severe you think the pain will be. It was initially developed for cancer pain, but it's been adapted for all kinds of pain with both outpatient and inpatient applications in both PO and IV routes. For mild pain using this ladder, we usually use non-steroidals, acetaminophen or paracetamol. Uh, for moderate pain, uh, non-steroidals uh, plus a weak opioid, uh, oxycodone, hydrocodone. Codeine itself is actually moving down the pike and we're discouraging use, as I'll show you in a minute. And then IV opioids uh, with scheduled non-steroidals or acetaminophen. And it does really help decrease your need for opioids to actually schedule your acetaminophen and or your ibuprofen. And we do that a lot in the burn unit where I work. So we schedule those and are able to use significantly less opioids. And then regional anesthetic techniques can be helpful. And then for severe pain, IV opioids and regional anesthetics. And if you have the capability, which is almost non-existent in low-resource settings, a patient-controlled analgesia actually leads to the best pain control and the less opioid use. Uh, some of the common non-steroidals, one that we have pretty much available to us everywhere that I've been in the low-resource settings is ibuprofen. Uh, it can be given per rectum if you need to. So if you have a post-op kid that you cannot use it by mouth, you can use it per rectum. And you can, with all these sorts of medicines, you can use the oral liquid form per rectum if I tell you you can use it per rectum. If you don't, you don't have to have a manufactured suppository to do it. Naproxen uh, is used for the older child and adult. Uh, all non-steroidals actually have similar analgesic properties if they're used in equal analgesic doses and most of the same side effects. So because of that, we do strongly recommend that you give them PO when you can. Uh, however, there is one IV uh, non-steroidal, and that's Ketorolac, and uh, you can use it if you have it available to you in patients who cannot take PO or PR. Uh, again, uh, it works, but it does have more side effects than ibuprofen or one of the PO non-steroidals. 
uh, works in kids pretty much the same way it does in adults. Shouldn't be used for more than four days at a time. Now, codeine, that's one that we've used a lot in the past, but due to new data, new evidence, we are we are taking it off of the formulary in many places, and we're working to do that in our own institution. First off, it doesn't have really good analgesic properties, but more importantly, there are genetic variants uh, in codeine metabolism that can lead to toxic levels, and so you get ultra-rapid metabolism toxic accumulation of the, of the morphine, which it's metabolized to, and there have been kids die from codeine given in usual doses. So, uh, again, strongly recommended that you take it off your formulary if you can, if you have other alternatives. Oxycodone uh, is one that we use quite a bit for the management of moderate to severe pain. It comes as both an immediate and a sustained release. For the younger children, you're stuck with the immediate release because the sustained release are too big of doses. And then there's morphine. I I sincerely wish that... uh, Our mission hospitals would work a little harder than they do to get morphine. I know at least in Nigeria you have to jump through so many hoops that most hospitals just don't try. But it is very, very helpful. It's very useful in pain management. Uh, It's less expensive than fentanyl. It does not have any amnesia or anxiolysis. And its one downside is histamine release, which rarely is associated with wheezing and hypotension. Not in common reality, though. Sometimes urinary retention and an advantage is a longer onset. Well, it takes a little longer to come on than fentanyl, but it also lasts longer. Uh, You can give morphine IV. You can give it IM. We try hard not to do that in pediatrics. You can give it by mouth, and you can also give it per rectum. And in some places, they will use the the solution that's actually distributed primarily for the cancer patients, but they'll give it per rectum uh, if they don't have any IV alternative. It is more widely available than fentanyl. Again, it's cheap. And then fentanyl uh, has come down in price and is more widely available than it used to be. It's about 100 times more potent than morphine, and it is more hemodynamically friendly than morphine. So we like to use it in our cardiac kids and such as that. And it also has less histamine release. Uh, It also provides no amnesia. You can get a steel chest or rigid chest, which are more likely if you're giving huge bolus dosing. Uh, It can be given IV orally or intranasally. And again, that's a trick we're doing a fair amount in our burn kids. 
uh, there's your dosing. <laughs> Tramadol is a non-opioid analgesic. It works like an opioid with uh, weak opioid uh, activity. However, don't mix it with a strong opioid like morphine or you can actually make the pain worse. Pethidine, also not the greatest choice, but sometimes your only choice. It's also an agonist antagonist. The downside to pethidine is that the metabolite can build up and cause respiratory depression without pain control. And at least in the pediatric world, it's often underdosed. Again, sometimes it's the only thing we have in Nigeria, so we use it, but not a great choice. Ketamine, we'll talk about it a little more in our sedation, but low-dose ketamine may be an alternative for pain control, and low-dose ketamine may decrease your need for higher-dose narcotics. And then for the neonate, for many simple procedures, actually sucrose uh, can be used uh, for pain and stress. Uh, breastfeeding, if that's a, an alternative, if they're not going to surgery, plus sucrose or glucose may be a better alternative. There is at least one article that said, well, maybe it doesn't work as well as we think, but I think there's a lot more literature saying it's a good idea. Naloxone in higher doses can be used to reverse sedation, analgesia, and respiratory depression of your opioids, but uh, we're using it less often for this indication because the reversal tends to wear off before the respiratory depression. So in most situations, we are supporting the respirations until the drug wears off, although occasionally we will still use it in overdoses. However, low-dose naloxone is being increasingly used to treat the nausea and also the puritis or itching from your opioids and actually works well. It can also be used to treat the constipation associated with opioids when you give it orally. All right, moving right along to a little bit about pediatric procedural sedation. Why do we sedate? Well, we sedate because kids get anxious, and if they're too anxious, they make it hard to perform the procedure, sometimes impossible, especially with some of the radiology procedures like an MRI. Uh, what do you need to do before you sedate? Well, first you need to do a brief history and physical, uh, and that includes, importantly, why the procedure is being done, questions like how long it's going to last, things like that. Does the child have underlying medical conditions, things like seizures or uh, asthma, which may change your management? Do they have Piero band or a little tiny mandible? Are they on medicines you need to consider? 
are they allergic to foods, the two biggest for us being eggs and soy? Does their family have problems with anesthesia? And are they NPO? We generally are nicer than the adults in our NPO guidelines, and those are generally accepted to be six hours for solids. Solids include formula and milk. Four hours for breast milk because it's better metabolized, and then two hours for clear liquids. Uh, and again, you want to pay a lot of attention when you look at the child, what's their baseline SAT, are they volume depleted? All sedation will cause hypotension if the patient is volume depleted. Are they obese? I already mentioned they're tiny mandible or they can't open their mouth, or they're wheezing, or they have heart disease, or they can't protect their airway, some keys. This is our ASA class, uh, class 1 being a healthy patient, class 2, systemic disease, well controlled, uh, class 3, uh, severe systemic disease, Class 4, severe systemic disease that threatens their life, and Class 5 is moribund and not expected to survive. Okay, how do you determine the best agent for what you're going to do? And again, one of the big questions is, is this a procedure that causes anxiety and pain, or is this a procedure that just causes anxiety or primarily pain? <coughs> How still do they need to be? They need to be a lot stiller for an MRI than they need to do, be for a CAT scan. How long is it going to last? A bone marrow lasts minutes. An MRI lasts 30 minutes to an hour. Uh, how's the patient and the family about the procedure, and what underlying medical conditions do they have? All right, sedation and pain control are synonymous. How many trues do we have? How many fosses, or are you all asleep? No. Yeah, it's absolutely false. They are not the same. Uh, and there are medicines such as barbiturates that actually increase pain uh, by inhibiting neural pathways. So they definitely aren't the same. We tend to talk about procedural pain control in mild, deep, and general anesthesia. I like that better than conscious sedation because conscious sedation is kind of a myth with kids. If they need to be sedated, they, they won't be conscious <laughs> because they won't uh, hold still for the procedure. Uh, some adolescents, of course, will be. But mild or <laughs> conscious is a minimally depressed level of consciousness, they can protect their airway, and they can respond to you if you ask questions. Deep or unconscious means that they are, have lost consciousness. They are at risk for not protecting their airway, but generally they do. And then general anesthesia, they lose the ability to protect their airway generally. And obviously, it's a continuum from awake to general anesthesia, and it's important to remember that all sedation can progress to deep sedation regardless of the drug or dose employed, and that one exception would be something like sucrose. 
You do need to have some basic equipment, even in low-resource settings. Uh, you need to at least have a bag mask ventilation, suction, and access to IV supplies if you're going to be doing sedation, even in low-resource settings. All right, what is the best monitoring tool for a sedation? How many vote for pulse oximeter? How many vote for blood pressure? How many vote for cardiac monitor? All right, if nobody votes for four, you really are asleep. How many vote for eyeballs? Okay, most of you all did not vote. We need that anonymous audience response system. Well, actually, when I ask my medical students and residents, I uniformly get number one, which is a pulse ox. However, that's really not true. Really, the single most important monitoring tool is still two eyeballs looking at the patient. It is the reason that the rules now say that every sedation in the U.S. has to have at least one person looking at the patient, not responsible for doing the procedure. However, the second most important, probably worldwide, is the pulse ox because it is more readily available. It's easy to use. It's pretty hard to break a pulse ox, although not impossible. If, however, you had your choice, an entitled carbon dioxide monitor is better because it picks up trouble sooner. But those are pretty much not available in most low-resource settings, and a pulse ox has saved thousands upon thousands of lives. So go for it unless you can get an entitled. We've already mentioned this, but you, you're looking at analgesia, sedation, anxiolysis, and occasionally paralysis. Our sedatives are our benzos, our bibrituates, chloral hydrate, but that's going away, and our alpha receptor agonists like clonidine and dexmedetomidine. Our analgesics are opioids and ketamine, and our anesthetics are ketamine and propofol that we use as non-anesthesiologists. The benzos do cause amnesia, both antegrade and retrograde. They do decrease anxiety. They do occasionally cause respiratory depression and some skeletal muscle relaxation. Midazolam is probably our most common benzo used in sedation in our country, and it can be given PO, IV, IM, intranasal, or per rectum. Uh, it doesn't, however, provide any analgesia, and occasionally in children we see paradoxical reactions. It does sometimes cause significant respiratory depression, especially if you mix it with an opioid. And in neonates, you can get bradycardia and hypotension and rarely seizures. Diazepam, which is available to us in low-resource settings, is similar to midazolam, but it is much longer-acting. And the disadvantage to us in at least the neonates is the accumulation of metabolites over time. Uh, it can be given IM, IV, PO, or PR. Barbiturates 
uh, are used usually for the induction of anesthesia, uh, can be used for hypnosis, sedation, and do cause respiratory depression. Penobarb is fairly safe and is good for sedation, again, when there's no pain to the procedure. Again, P-O-I-V-I-M and P-R. Biopenethol, again, like the other barbiturates, provides no pain control. Propofol, probably the most common sedative we use in procedure or pain control in pediatrics in the U.S. Again, it does cause sedation. Uh, it does not cause, it does not have much analgesic properties. The nice thing about propofol, it is very rapid onset and very rapid recovery. Uh, goes on fast, comes off fast. There's your dosing. Uh, it does, it can cause respiratory depression. Its biggest side effect is hypotension and bradycardia and pain at the injection site, which can be helped by mixing it with lidocaine. Uh, oops, I said that. And then dexamethotomidine is uh, a newer sedation that we are using increasingly. Uh, also, maybe a little bit of analgesia, but not much. Uh, can cause either hypertension or hypotension, but its biggest downside is bradycardia. It can also cause respiratory depression, but the nice thing about it is it can be used in patients who have allergies to eggs, which propofol cannot be. And then narcotics plus benzos uh, are a good combination but can cause respiratory depression and more than either one have alone. And then probably the biggest uh, pain medicine slash anesthetic that we use in low resource settings is ketamine. It is a full-blown anesthetic if it's dosed correctly. It provides both analgesia and amnesia. It alters the upper airway tone some, but not a lot, and so most people maintain their airway protection. It's great for asthmatics because it causes bronchodilation, and it probably, as I said earlier, reduces the dose of morphine when they're used together. It does probably <coughs> cause increased intracranial pressure, although some people argue that that's a dose thing. Rarely laryngeal spasm, often increased secretions. If that's a problem, you can give it, you can give atropine along with it. And for some people, you have a fairly significant emergence reaction. At least in my own life, I've found that to be less problematic in kids and less problematic in Africa where I think they are more used to vivid things than maybe we are, or at least more tolerant of them. Uh, relative contraindications for ketamine are head injuries, airway abnormalities, procedures where you're going to stimulate the posterior pharynx, glaucoma, psychosis, thyroid disorders, and uncontrolled hypertension.
There's your dose, and it can be given IV, IM, PO, or probably intranasal. That's new, and uh, the dosing is still being worked out, but it's another alternative. We use ketamine a lot in our burn kids because it does provide anesthesia as well as amnesia, and because many of these kids over time become almost impossible IV starts. Uh, rapid onset, but not such a rapid wearing off. All right, we just have a few minutes, but we'll stop there and see if you have any quick questions. Thank you. Yes. Yes, and he's a keto, some people call it ketofol, which is a mixture of ketamine and propofol and gives you, uh, you can use a much lower dose of ketamine and therefore uh, have less of the ketamine side effects but still get the pain control. And so, yes, I do use ketofol. I don't, some people mix it in the same syringe. I tend to use it in two different syringes, so it's, it's up to you. And you, pro, you can use, usually you can get by with a half a milligram per kilo or less of the ketamine. And then because I put them in separate syringes, I titrate the propofol to the sedation. But other people have other recipes. Yeah. I just use the oral dosing. That's, it's about 8 to 10 per kilo, and you can just use a small feeding tube or a cut-off you know, piece of tubing or whatever and just give it rectally. Yes, same dosing interval. And I would do that primarily when there was a reason not to feed them, like surgery. I just had a question. I know you talked about the allergy to soy and egg. I know we've been having trouble with the propofol shortage. We've been getting it from the U.K., and it has peanut in it. So now we have to ask about peanut Okay. She's saying that some of the propofol that's coming from the U.K. actually has peanuts in it. I don't think we've got that brand yet, but that would be another major allergy in the States. Interestingly enough, peanut allergy doesn't seem to have arrived in sub-Saharan Africa. You almost never see a peanut allergy. In fact, I have never seen one. I don't know if anybody else has, but I've never seen a peanut allergy in sub-Saharan Africa. But I don't know if anybody else has. Anybody? You had a, oh, in a missionary. Okay, that doesn't quite count. He's seen peanut allergy in a missionary. All right, that one doesn't count. In, in, a, in a native sub-Saharan African person. Uh, I'm not sure why that is. We do use Atomidate. I didn't put it in here because, uh, A, it's not usually available in low-resource settings, and there, you, know, you have to be careful, and we don't usually use it in sepsis and this, that, and the other, so... Didn't mention it, but you, yes, we do use it in head injuries and things like that sometimes. Um, is, uh, how big of a factor is cost when it comes to things like ketamine? Do you see, do you see that? In ketamine is cheap. Ketamine is very, very, very cheap, and it's one of the reasons that it's so widely available is because it is cheap and uh, e- e- easy to use. Cost is a big factor in things like propofol which we would use a lot more, propofol, fentanyl, those sorts of things. Probably morphine, it's more red tape than it is cost.
for morphine, but for ketamine, it's cheap. Yeah, he's saying learn how to use ketamine stateside, and there's a lot of opportunities to do so. We use it tons in the burn unit, uh, and so you can get a lot of use. We use it for asthmatics almost exclusively, uh, so it's possible, although some PICUs I've been in don't like it as well as others, so it varies from unit to unit. I think there was something else. Is it was, I believe, last time I checked, although I haven't tried to use it in the last few years, so I, so, so maybe not. But I, last time, I, last time I, I've seen it used fairly recently, but I haven't tried to use it in the last couple years. Does anybody else know if thiopental is still available? Not sure. All right. Feel free to email me if you have any questions. Dr. Fisher sitting in the back. I frequently email him when I don't know the answer because he usually does. But uh, I'll find somebody who knows the answer if I don't, uh, if you have other specific questions. Thank you. Uh, I, I don't know if there were handouts, actually. I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure. I did upload it, so you should be able to get it. It is uploaded on the on the website, but I don't know about the handouts. Yeah, yes, it'll be on the website for the conference.